Hi, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organization dedicated to creating a flourishing world. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core psychological capabilities that decades of research suggests are essential in creating a flourishing life. Mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. So join me as I speak with experts from around the globe as they share their experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. Today, I'm speaking with Associate Professor Aaron Jarden. Aaron is the Director of the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, University of Melbourne. He is a wellbeing consultant, social entrepreneur, has multiple qualifications in philosophy, computing, education, and psychology, and is a prolific author and presenter. He has previously been a Senior Research Fellow at Flinders University and Head of Research at the Wellbeing and Resilience Centre at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. He is the past President of the New Zealand Association of Positive Psychology, co-editor of the International Journal of Wellbeing, lead investigator for the International Wellbeing Study and senior scientist for work on wellbeing, amongst others. Well, welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. How are you today? I'm great. I'm in a great mood. (laughs) And it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today, Susie. Thank you, Aaron. And of course, we've known each other for quite a while now, right back to when you were working in New Zealand and, of course, launched the New Zealand Positive Psychology Association, which um, I'm aware is still running thanks to your initial input. And thanks also for providing your flourishing fact, absolutely something I didn't know about you, which was that you came third in a New Zealand Open Martial Arts tournament when you did Taekwondo. Yes, many, many moons ago. Wow. Now, that's something, certainly not a strength of mine, something I've always wanted to do, actually. But I did did like your other response was that if you entered a, a spelling tournament, you're pretty sure you'd come third last. <laughs> Yeah. Where, in fact, spelling's probably one of my strengths. And I always remember as a child, I used to be able to spell chrysanthemum, (laughs) C-H-R-Y-S-A-N-T-H-E-M-U-M. I can't even pronounce it, more or less spell it. (laughs) Anyway, so today we are talking about mood. And I know you've said you've actually read the chapter on mood in my book, The Positivity Prescription. And I actually started the book with mood because for me, in teaching and training, a lot of people, they don't know what they don't know. And I know for myself in my training as a psychologist, and I'm assuming the same for you, it was really enlightening to learn about emotions. Although in clinical training, for me, it was, at least in my training, it was all about fear, anger, sadness, shame, disgust, and guilt. And I didn't have one lecture on joy or kindness or love. I don't know about you, Aaron. What was your training like? Exactly the same. So it's really been a joy that positive psychology over the last 20 years has focused on the study of particularly positive emotions. But I guess, again, perhaps it is my clinical training. I've always recognised the importance to look at the full range of human emotions. But what about you, Aaron? What does mood actually mean to you? Well, well, I guess I'm a scientist, so it's always good to start with definitions. To me, mood is just the predominant emotion that you're in. It's a feeling kind of thing. I guess technically we call it an affective state. 
but I guess at the, at the basic level, it's an internal subjective state of emotion. And I, and I guess emotions are a little bit different to mood in the sense of moods are a little less specific than emotions. Emotions can, re, you know, you're angry about something, uh, whereas um, emotions are a more uh, generalized feeling. They're generally a lot less intense than an emotion. Emotions usually have this intensity to them, whereas you're just in a mood, uh, it's a lot less intense. Moods are also less likely to be provoked by particular events. So, you know, somebody hits you, you feel angry, but uh, you, you don't really know why you're in a particular mood sometimes. And, and I guess one of the other differentiators is moods just last a lot longer than emotions. Emotions are really fleeting, but the people describe being in a mood that can last a whole day or for, for lengthy periods of times. So I guess moods and emotions are linked, but emotions really are more specific and underpin a general mood feeling. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, again, when we're talking about clinical disorders like depression, people do talk about the black dog or the black cloud and that this sort of dark mood just comes over them and seems to hang around, as you said. I wonder, though, Aaron, if there's been any research around being in a positive mood state. Does it, I mean, like positive emotions tend to be more fleeting? What do you think? Or does there is there any research on that, I wonder? So, yeah, since the founding of the field of positive psychology, there has been quite substantial research on positive moods and positive emotions in particular, and particularly all the benefits that the research tells us of being in a good or, or healthy mood. And a lot of these are cognitive. So if you're in a, in a positive mood, you're more creative in your problem solving, uh, you're more flexible in your thinking, your perspective's broadened, your attention's sharpened. There's really interesting studies that show positive mood sort of reduces temptation to eat unhealthy foods and things like that. So there's, there's a whole lot of cognitive benefits to being in a positive mood. Mood. And then, of course, there are there are physiological and health benefits too. Particularly, a lot of the research seems to be around heart health. So, positive moods really linked to better heart health. But positive moods help you sleep better. Also, interesting what what you eat impacts your mood as well. So, the link between mood uh, food, Aaron, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure you've heard of being hangry. <laughs> There's that link with positive mood and health, and particularly links between positive mood and performance, whether it be academically or at work. And of course, with, with the broad and build theory of, of positive emotions, uh, we know that uh, greater positive mood states link to resilience as well. So I guess there's, there's all sorts of benefits of wanting to and increasing, needing to cultivate and foster positive mood. But also, I think there's really interesting, it's not just about getting more positive moods. A lot of the benefits actually come from a diverse range of mood states. So it's not just beneficial to be positive mood states all the time. Actually, negative mood states can be quite functional for us as well. So that diversity of mood experience is important as well. Absolutely. And I was just mentioning, I just read a great paper on emo diversity, which we'll put on our Facebook page, at least the the abstract for that, um, which I found really interesting. As you said, like it's the diversity and being able to, I guess, have the awareness around the emotional state and perhaps the language. Obviously, positive psychology, as I said, has focused a lot on positive emotions. From my perspective in the early days, perhaps even to the detriment of the field where a lot of people thought it was about a happyology or being happy all the time. Do you think there has been a balancing out in more recent times? Yeah, I certainly think there has been. And I guess that was just to take one of the key researchers in the field, Ed Dina, you know, he couldn't get research on happiness. So he, he relabeled it subjective well-being rather than focusing on the term happiness. So I think the research has sort of come in, started off with a focus on particular types of emotions and moods, but certainly moved pretty quickly to a broader conceptualization of well-being as, as the field's kind of developed. So to a less extent, focusing on the sort of happiness and happyology, but actually what a whole life and a full life would actually mean. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, again, great to hear your thoughts on this. The Positive Psychology 2.0, or I guess the second wave of positive psychology, to me, seems to be more inclusive of the full range of human emotions rather than the, you know, sole focus on, on the cultivation of positive emotions. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And Tim and uh, Lindsay and, and a few others have just got a paper accepted with the third wave. So the third wave is coming now. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Oh, I can't wait uh, but, to hear but, about it. But I certainly agree with your point. It's more about the fuller, broader perspective and drawing on other literature bases as well. Yeah. So in terms of, I guess, the science underpinning mood, where would you say we're drawing on that? Obviously, positive psychology, as I said, has focused a lot on the positive emotions, Barbara Fredrickson's work, but even before her, Alice Eisen did some incredible research as well. What about the broader state of mood? Which areas of psychology do you see we're drawing on that can contribute positively to positive psychology, if you like? Yeah. Well, even just before I answer that question, it's pertinent, I think, to acknowledge that mood goes right back in history. So historically, historians, uh, novelists, philosophers, sociologists, you know, psychologists aren't the only one that have been talking and investigating and working with mood. So it's been around for a very long time. But within psychology per se, mood's been really predominant in clinical and counselling psychology and social psychology, also in health psychology and to a lesser extent in, in cultural comparisons across nations around how mood states vary. So across various different domains and fields in psychology, mood has been a central topic. But I guess it sort of really fits under two broad areas of psychology, the sort of social and personality kind of basis and also the mental health yes. kind of basis. And um, I mean, in my training, which was a while ago now, the sole focus at that time tended to be on cognitive behavioural approaches for mood management, particularly negative, if we want to use those labels, and perhaps we talk about the use of labels too in a moment, but the increased interest in, in ACT. And uh, what are your thoughts about CBT and ACT as mood management strategies? I guess I have an interesting history in the sense of, you know, I'm a guy, I came out of school, not with great academics, I went to university, started studying psychology and learning about mood. And it wasn't really till I started my clinical training that I got, you know, a good in-depth understanding of what mood actually was. And so I sort of came from firstly a male perspective where I don't think we talk about uh, moods to any extent to which females talk about mood. So I was a real novice and I learned about mood mostly through a, a fantastic book called Mind Over Mood by Christine Podesky and I forget the other author, but that book taught me to identify what moods were, how to rate moods, just the basics of the architecture of what a mood is. I love that book and I'd recommend that as sort of the go-to, even though it's not a positive psychology book, a, a go-to one for embarking on finding out more about what mood is. Absolutely. We'll put a link to that in on the Facebook page too. And what other areas, Aaron, have you drawn on in terms of mood management from the science? I, I guess the ones that I draw on now too. So that's the uh, sorry, I just realised I didn't quite answer your question. That, that book, Mind Over Mood, does the more CBT kinds of things about controlling your thoughts and how they relate to mood. But I love the ACT acceptance and commitment therapy approach to it as well. But my personal mood management techniques are really the positive ones. So, you know, I use mood induction techniques to get me into good mood. So playing a song, occasionally when I take a break, I'll rewatch some favourite parts of movies. And I think of all the positive psychological interventions that I've used with people, um, the one that I've had the most benefit or positive experiences is one that I call the three breath that I pinched off Justin Robinson from Geelong Grammar, which is a specific mood induction technique. So it's sort of you breathe out and you relax your body. The second breath out, I get them to focus on what's grateful, they're grateful for right now. We know there's a strong link between gratitude and positive emotions, but it's that link. That's the mood induction technique for me. So when I want to center myself and get into a good mood, I relax my physical body. I think about what I'm grateful for, and then I focus my attention. So that's probably the one that I use the most. 
Absolutely. And I mean, in the last few months and continuing, and I know you're in Victoria right now as well, I guess I've been doing a lot of interviews around the power of positivity or particularly positive emotions right now. And you made some reference to that. But sometimes I find people find it very difficult to say, oh, what, I'm just thinking happy, am I? Or like, I guess, a false sense of it. What would you say to that? It's obviously worked quite powerfully in the examples you've given. Yeah. What would you say to those sort of criticisms? Um... I think on one sense, I mean, this is a bit of a controversial statement so or contentious view potentially, but I actually think there's quite a lot of power in avoiding and denying um, some negative moods when they're really strong. I know that's worked for me. I think the problem is in, in doing that on a continual basis. So at least temporarily, I think there's nothing wrong with denying or um, avoiding strong negative emotions if you're not in a state where you've got the skills to handle that. So I know people are overwhelmed with the COVID situation and the lockdown and the frustration. So whilst we see a lot of the social media about, you know, how can you come out of this better, bigger, stronger sort of thing, I think there's no problem at all with just acknowledging that the situation really sucks. It sucks for everybody and it's impacting everybody. And if you're not thriving through it, that's not necessarily problematic. No. And I guess in a sense, it's not necessarily avoiding it. It's sort of acknowledging it, isn't it? But perhaps shifting more quickly. And I think you and I are probably the same on that, Aaron, in terms of I use those mood management strategies I have for a long time and I know I've certainly upped the ante through COVID as well but I, I don't see an issue in terms of if you watch the news and you know which we, we actually know there's research to show that if you watch too much news which is mainly negative that's it's highly correlated with depression as well but if I watch the news and I feel my mood drop a bit then I will go and put a piece of music on light a candle start cooking not that cooking is a strength of mine but it, it's something that I'm learning so I actively use those techniques to shift my mood as well which works for me fantastic why do you think there's been such a strong interest in positive psychology from a mood perspective in in schools and workplaces in our community well, I think there's a few answers to that. One would be, I think there's just decreasing media attention on happiness and well-being nowadays. The, me the media are certainly getting more interested in, in this topic because they realise that the lay public are more interested in the topic. And I think that's because we're really in a time of change globally where financially we've got our resources covered and people are starting to think more about the life they want and what life could look like. And the media sort of feeding into and addressing that need and talking about happiness and well-being. So that's one sort of driver. The other sort of driver is I'm not too sure I convinced myself that it's mood per se that are getting people into these wellbeing programs. If I think about schools, I'd say maybe there's a bit of a difference in the sense of I think schools really get hooked into from the performance aspect of mood driving performance or wellbeing driving performance for the students at least. For the staff, I think it's more about the mood of the staff rather than the performance. You know, it's about their well-being and longevity and turnover and things like that. So it's kind of different everywhere, but I'm not sure it's mood per se that gets them hooked in. Yeah. And what about workplaces? Because I know you've worked on an assessment and it is an area of interest for you. What do you think the interest is there in workplaces? Well, at the moment, there's a really strong interest in uh, resilience, obviously, given the COVID situation. And, and we know there's a correlation of 0.5 between resilience and well-being. So I think that's the pathway in to what workplaces are currently interested in, because we know that improving your mood or your well-being does make you more resilient and the other way around as well. Absolutely. So what would you say have been your greatest learnings so far? Um, and I know it is a big topic, mood. It's sort of an umbrella term, isn't it? What would you say, yeah, your greatest learnings have been? 
Well, I, I guess I'm not really a mood researcher, but I think my learnings really come from me being as a male. I still see a great divide and a gender divide and the understanding of mood. So just for example, when you know my wife gets together with her girlfriend, she's, you know, the conversation starts with how you're feeling and it's an investigation into mood states of everyone in the group. Uh, <laughs> but I get together with my guy friends, you know, it's the last thing we talk about. Um, so there is this really unrecognized, I think, or unappreciated at least gender divide and the importance of mood, how we talk about mood, things like that. So at a practical level, that's what I notice. I guess my learning also is I'm not convinced that positive psychology has really embraced the full history of how moods are being talked about in psychology and, and really whether at the forefront of an aspect of well-being. So they're obviously um, the first P in PERMA, positive emotions, but the extent to which we give them that kind of credit and that kind of emphasis in our interventions, for example, I'm not sure that's there. So I find that a really interesting learning. I think some of the other things are just that they're really fleeting. They're really hard to measure. There's really questions about the reliability of test retest or validity of actually whether we can measure moods quite accurately. I know there's a lot of skepticism from other scientists and psychology about this. Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, in terms of the, I guess, your response around the gender divide, if you like, I mean, I'm an optimist, as I'm sure you are. I, I do believe that's changing and particularly, I guess, through the work in POSED that's happening in schools with children, including obviously young boys as well, learning about emotions and being able to understand and, and label and manage their emotions, which for me is just so wonderful to see. That, if anything, is one of the best things to see to come out of positive psychology and the positive education movement, because not only is that good for increasing well-being in itself, but it's very preventative of a lot of the mental health issues that come. So if young kids can learn the well-being literacy, the well-being language to talk about their moods, you know, when their moods start to go wrong, they've got that capability there. So even if it's more of a clinical kind of learning, I think that's absolutely fantastic to see. And and it's not just in schools, it's in sport. You know, the AFL are really getting into mood, mood management as well now. So I think, you know, across these different vectors of society, we're seeing more emphasis and schools are really the key vector here. So that, if anything, that's the thing that you know, I'm most excited about. Yes, and there is quite a lot of research even pre-existing, I guess, to positive psychology on SEL, social and emotional learning, which I, I know you'd be aware of. And of course, you mentioned the Positive Psych Centre at Melbourne Uni doing work on wellbeing literacy. And, and how do you see, I guess, mood or emotions? Is wellbeing literacy broader than mood and emotions, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. It's about the language that we have to communicate about our well-being and for our well-being. And emotional language is one part of that, but there's a broader language around well-being that's important. And I guess we need this if we're going to move to a state of still thinking about schools, having well-being plans for kids in schools where every, every kid plans for well-being in the same way that they plan for their academic performance. You know, a lot of these initiatives rest on actually firstly having a literacy around understanding what a mood is and being able to identify and rate it and things like that. So so it's really hard to scaffold these things if we don't start with that really basic level of literacy around well-being in a particular mood. Absolutely. And I, I mean, we're finding in the workshops we're doing in the corporate sector that people are telling us that their children are coming home and teaching their parents about these skills. So we've sort of got this bizarre scenario yeah, where kids are teaching their parents some of the, the basic mood management strategies. I guess in the corporate sector too, in the work that I've been involved in over the last 20 years, obviously emotional intelligence has been a big focus, particularly for leaders, becoming an emotionally intelligent leader. But, you know, generally the broader staff don't tend to benefit from that sort of training. So what do you think about taking these skills out much more broadly than just to leaders at this point too? 
I think it's critical. And at the moment, the reason that it's not happened is really a resourcing issue. So we've got to think of more flexible and agile and scalable ways to make this relevant for everybody. And we just don't want a situation where we have our leaders thriving at work and everyone else suffering to create, you know, we don't want to create that kind of inequality. So whilst a lot of this is new and we're sort of segmenting our learnings at the leadership level, mostly, we've really got to, as a second step, strategize now to think about how this can be rolled down and out through an organization, but also post the organization so that actually employees can then teach their partners and teach their kids and you know it's that kind of transference that we need this translation of the science needs to go from just individual to individual to actually having a a social impact network that sort of ripple effect absolutely we do know there is an emotional and social contagion effect from the research as well so we sort of want to reinforce that i guess as a business case you mentioned a couple of mood management techniques that you use personally earlier on but i also noticed i think when you were responding in preparation for the podcast that you mentioned the research around maximizing and satisfying would you mind explaining that to the audience so this comes out, out of Barry Schwartz's work. So he, in his uh, book, The Paradox of Choice, explains this idea between maximizing and satisfying. So I think the way that you make decisions and you make choices has a big impact on your well-being. And I think this is really underrealized. So to maximize a choice, you so he, the way he explains in his book is he's buying a new pair of jeans. To maximize, he goes out and compares all the places that sell jeans from their price, their quality, you know, all these different kinds of variables. And then he makes a choice based on all the information he's collected. So that's a very time-consuming and cognitive draining kind of approach. But you generally end up with a better choice at the end of the day versus satisfying, which is, you know, I've got a criteria for jeans, which is, you know, they just need to fit. I need to afford them. And I'm not interested in these other, you know, how good they look or or things like that. So as soon as I find that pair of jeans, I won't then go to the next shop and the next shop and come back and compare. I'll just get this set of jeans that satisfies me, that they're good for the purpose that I want. And that choice is a much quicker one, less cognitively draining. And in some domains of life, it's good to maximize, like choosing a partner for life, definitely. Uh, but, but, But in some domains, a lot of people try to maximize with buying a laundry detergent. They look at everyone and (laughs) they spend a lot of time doing that, whereas actually satisfying there frees up that cognitive load. Because when we're really cognitively owed by maximizing too much, uh, that really impacts our well-being. So that's one key strategy that I've found that really relates to putting me in a better mood is not trying to maximize everything, but actually thinking how important is this choice for me and can I satisfy here? Absolutely. I think it's been, uh, for me, you know, I have fashion goals. I love fashion generally, but I know through COVID, I've pretty much had a uniform, which is my tracksuit pants, my Ugg boots, and then change the top from the halfway up. Does that also fit in? Because I know you've also done some research or I've actually heard you present on minimalism as well. And do you think there's a connection there? Oh, yeah, they're, they're absolutely interconnected. So minimalism, I, I call it simplifying your life. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's a minimalism movement, there's a slow movement, there's a simplifying movement. All these movements really correlate quite highly together. But by simplifying, I mean sort of peering back. So you sort of take your to-do list from 10 things and sort of cut out three. And you, by, you do that by prioritizing what's most important on that list. So by making life simpler, you're doing less, but you're doing more of what's important. And I think that that sort of avoids the strain and stress of our modern Veruca kind of world that's constantly and flux and changing if we're doing less, but we're absolutely focused on what's most important to us. And I think perhaps COVID, perhaps one of the positives is that it's helped people determine what matters most and and to perhaps simplify a little. I know there's been a lot of decluttering I've been aware of in talking to people over the last few months. So we're coming towards the end of the interview now, Aaron. What do you see for the future of mood, again, as a big topic, scientifically? 
Well, scientifically, I think there's still a lot of work to be done with the biological measure of mood correlates. So well, when we're in a mood, what particular neural patterns are those? So I guess we need more funding to do the heavier science, the heavier lifting around those more scanning technologies and biological measurements of blood samples, but also around genetics and things like that. So I think we need a lot more in that kind of area around what moods are. At least that will stem the scepticism from the other scientists in the other fields of psychology in particular. So I see, I'd like to see more in that. I particularly think there'll be better technology to track changes in moods from smartwatches being able to pick up more but also behavioral algorithms so just tracking your phone for example we can tell if you move more you walk faster you actually cover more distance you're probably in a better mood than if you're in a lower mood using that kind those kind of algorithms to predict when somebody's tipping a depression i see that definitely is the future of some um, assessment techniques and then i think more applied mood induction techniques and in, in work and performance proceedings so we know all sorts of things like you know the color of the room impacts your mood i mean this all goes back to when you lock inpatients up in pink kind of cells to calm them down. But we know the environment really induces mood. So architects now are becoming more thoughtful about how they design office environments, for example, about how they can create conversations and create relationships, but also get people into good mood. So I think that applied nature of using mood induction techniques, particularly, I think there's going to be a lot of research in that because that's been really underappreciated. Yeah, so we'll see the much more explicit consideration of mood management. And do you think also, I mean, my hope is perhaps in five years' time, five to ten years' time, that more schools will be implementing, whether it's SEL or broader wellbeing literacy programs as well. Yeah, I mean, that's my hope. That's my goal. I think we've still got some missing pieces of the puzzle, like how to plan for well-being and how to have policies around well-being. You know, there's some missing pieces of the puzzle that still need to be worked out. But I'd absolutely love to see that in the future because there's so many good reasons to do it, not just well-being per se, but, you know, preventative of mental health for young kids, but also better performance, but also that translation into the appearance and, and wider society. Schools really are the great vector here. So I think, if anything, I'd love to see COVID-provoking conversation about, you know, what do we want from our school systems? Do we just want academics or actually do we want to teach skills for living and skills for a great life as well at this key point in a person's development? Absolutely. And why we need such important and wonderful research that you're involved with and your colleagues at uh, University of Melbourne as well. So I know you mentioned one book, uh, Christine Pedeski's book before. Is there any other book or podcast that you'd recommend for someone interested in learning more about mood management techniques? I think the key researcher in this area by a long shot is Barbara Fredrickson. So her book, Love Point 2.0, I think is absolutely rich in discussion around emotion and emotion management. So that would be the first one to start with, I think, if not the Mind Over Mood, the more clinical book. Although having noticed that, I, you know, I read the first version of Mind Over Mood back in, I think it was about the year 2000. And I just looked up the current version and I see it's infused with uh, positive mood, and, uh, positive moods and gratitude interventions and assessments of wellbeing and all sorts of things like that. So it's lovely to see that pivot over the It is actually. I was just reflecting on that myself in terms of my cognitive behavioural training. There was always pleasant event scheduling, like that was always in there anyway. But it is so great to see uh, even clinical psychology starting to embrace a bit more of the power of the cultivation of positive emotions. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm. I bet zest, energy and vitality is up there in your top five strengths for sure. And good luck for your continued studies and we look forward to speaking to you again in the future. And just a quick thank you for writing The Positive Prescription. It's a fantastic book and it's a great contribution and it's so easy to read. That's the joy of this one. Thank you so much, Aaron. Well, that was fun. 
Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. Don't forget to sign up for our e-news from our website where you can stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode and remember, life's too short to languish.